good morning. As our multi-sites and our venues join us now, uh, hey, I'm, I'm kind of proud of you guys. We all made it through the first week in 2017. So congratulations. You've done it, okay? A lot of us like to set resolutions. We're very like goal-driven and, and goal-oriented. And if you're like that, Way to go, that's awesome. Uh, here's a little slide that I think will be helpful for, for some of us. This is kind of how we approach it. It says New Year's resolutions here at the top. And it's got this really fit guy here and he's running along and it sort of says what I expected. And then it has what we'll call a calorically unafraid individual <laughs> licking Cheetos off of his chest. Close enough, right? We do this every year. It is so funny to me. We all set resolutions. We all have weight loss resolutions, or some of us do. If you're fit and trim, yet again, way to go. But some of us are sitting there going, hey, I'm gonna lose weight this year. And some of you are good at that. Some of you may be like me. You're still carrying a little holiday weight from 2007. <laughs> it happens for some of us. Some of us wanna save more money. It's like the American dream every January is to weigh less and be worth more, right? So today, what I want to ask is, are there maybe some spiritual goals that we should set for the upcoming year? Are there things that we should be thinking about and aiming at? Some of you may be really intentional about this, and if that's the case, that's awesome. Uh, my, my small group gets together uh, every year in January, and we always sit down and we go, okay, group, love you guys. We walk through life together. Um, what are we going to do this year? And it's so funny. We, we recapped them this last year, and everyone's goal was to read the Bible more. And I went, well, that's awesome. Uh, many of us went, I should get better at that. And I, I went, okay, I'm outlawing that one. I wanna know what's going on in your heart. We all know we need to read our Bible more, whether you do it seven times a week or once a month. Let's do something deeper. And that's really what I want to challenge you with today is something deep. And, and I, I'm, that's kind of an admission before we start. I am intending to challenge you today. For some of you, this message will be very difficult. And it's not to, to unintentionally grieve you. It's just to stand back and to say, this has really become a life passage and understanding for me. And I'm gonna share it with you today about as kind of unbridled as I know how, because I'm that passionate about the understanding of the scriptures in this way. And to do that, I wanna open up with kind of a metaphor. And it comes from one of the great storytellers of all time, C.S. Lewis. Some of you are familiar with his work, and this one comes from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. One of its main characters, Edmund, he follows his sister Lucy through a magical wardrobe. On the other side, he meets the White Witch, who has declared that it is always winter in Narnia, but never Christmas. The White Witch tempts Edmund with an addictive candy called Turkish Delight. The White Witch promises Edmund all the Turkish Delight he wants if he will bring Lucy and his other siblings to her castle. Edmund doesn't realize the White Witch's plan is to kill them off to prevent the fulfillment of an ancient prophecy. Soon Edmund realizes he has betrayed his siblings and allied himself with evil, but it is too late. Edmund in the story so symbolically represents all of us as human beings condemned by the law, lost in our sin. Edmund at this point in the story is a traitor. Now, the reality for so many of us, and, and this is a tie I want to make today, is that Edmund in this story has a lot in common with one of our biblical characters, Judas Iscariot, who betrayed Christ. But the outcomes were different. You see, Judas betrayed Christ then experienced this overwhelming force which led to him taking his life. Edmund, in our story, in Lewis's tale, ends up experiencing redemption. 
shortly said, Judas's driving force led to death and Edmund's led to his redemption. We're gonna talk about two main points today. We're gonna talk about godly grief and worldly grief. One of them is from the Lord, a gift from the Lord and a function of the Holy Spirit. The other of these two forces is a heavy burden and a constant attack from the enemy. Now, your, your first point on your outline today is this. What I want to do, my goal with you today is to help you delineate between godly grief and worldly grief. So store that in the back of your mind because everything we are going to do today is designed at helping you delineate, to decipher between these two forces that I promise you are going on in your life. And so to do that, we're gonna go into the book of 2 Corinthians. We're gonna be in chapter seven and be in verses eight, nine, and 10. We'll read them now. It says, for even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Now, uh, that's a lot to, to even take in. And one of the things I like so much is when scripture sort of gives us a peek kind of behind the curtain as to what some of the people we look up to are experiencing. I, I think sometimes we can take the apostles and, and they did so many great things. Uh, they were ministering so powerfully and we start to elevate them. And I think rightfully so. Just we continue to elevate them and elevate them. These were kind of the fathers of the church in so many ways, but we end up elevating them out uh, beyond where we can really look up to them or we can use them as examples or models for our lives. For example, here, I love where Paul shows us a great deal of humility in verse eight, for he says, even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. I think in my own brain sometimes that what Paul is doing when he's ministering to these churches or when he's writing to these churches, he's sitting down and going, I'm gonna go to Corinth and here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna do this, I'm gonna do this, I'm gonna do this, and then it's gonna work out this way. That's not how it works. The way the Holy Spirit is functioning in Paul is the same way the Holy Spirit functions with you and me. That's what that little point right there means, though I did regret it. He's sitting back, led by the Holy Spirit, going, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go do one, I'm gonna do two, and I'm gonna do three, and I'm not sure how that's gonna go. I need you to see that because the Holy Spirit does that with us. We don't know how it's gonna work out when he moves. And what Paul is saying here is this, boy, I wrote a heck of a letter to the Corinthian church. How many of you have read 1 Corinthians? Kind of a friendly note to some brothers and sisters in Christ, right? Not really. It is harsh. It is a corrective word to this church. And what we are working out of today is Paul's second letter to that church or another letter to that church. And that's something that I think we miss sometimes is that what Paul does here is incredible. He says, wow, I, I, I hit the send button on that email and immediately went, whoa. What have I done? And he says that he saw that the letter grieved him. Now, verse nine, he really breaks it open and he says, as it is, I rejoice. Not because you were grieved, good comfort, right? Paul's basically saying, I'm not, I'm not doing backflips right now because you were hurt or because I hurt you. That's not the point. But for this purpose, but because you were grieved into repenting, for you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us, 
The best picture I can use, and I'm visual, so pictures help me understand the scriptures. It's like the Corinthian church is a spine, a human spine. And what happens with spines sometimes, as some of us know painfully, vertebrae get out of whack. And we have chiropractors who will come in, and when that vertebrae is out of whack, it, it impinges on the spinal cord or the muscles around it. It can create inflammation and all this stuff that's going on. And what happens is chiropractors, whether you like them or not, I, I tend to, they come in and they go, and painfully, sometimes violently, they will manipulate the spine back into where it belongs. And once it is there, it can function the way it was designed, being supported by all of the other cushioning devices between the vertebrae. It's back in its designed position. What Paul is saying here is he's saying the Corinthians, like a spine, were out of place. And this grief had an effect that was important. It moved them back into alignment with Jesus Christ. And that is what Paul is rejoicing over. This grief had an effect. It did something powerful. They were grieved into repenting. They felt a godly grief and therefore suffered no loss. Now, verse 10 really kind of breaks it open. It's right here. It says, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation, important character, uh, characteristic here, without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. I like this so much. Go back to the original metaphor. We kind of drew on two stories there. If you've read, how many of you have read Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe or seen the movies? Way more hands go up. I love that. Every service, books, movies, both hands, got it. The reality is when you're looking at this portion of the story, Edmund is a mess. He's betrayed his siblings. He's realizing that. He's in this cell. He's experiencing incredible duress, lamenting what he's done, and yet something happens there that causes him to turn and to start walking in a new direction that leads to redemption as to where Judas is just overcome by something and ends up going, I just can't live like this anymore, ends up taking his own life. Now, for us to go where I need to take you today, we have to understand a word in verse 10, and we have to understand it clearly within its biblical context, and we have to completely obliterate what so many of us have made this word to mean, and that word is repentance. We misunderstand repentance. Repentance is not a really godly word for I'm sorry. That's not repentance. Repentance is not a really godly word for I'm gonna come and grovel before the Lord so that he knows I feel bad about my sin. That's not what repentance is. Repentance is this. It is the Greek word meta and noeo. Meta, noeo. And what it means is this, and we pronounce it metanoia, but meta meaning after or to change, and noeo meaning to think. So metanoia means to change your thinking, or what's another way we would say that? To change your mind. Do you see how different that is than coming to God and going, okay, um, I'm here to say I'm sorry. No, that's not really the heart of it. Or I'm here to just throw myself before you because I need to feel bad about the sin in my life. No, it's more than that. It is to look at your sin and to change your mind to go, wow. And I'll use an example here, right? You're living angry in your life. 
And you come before God and you go, whoa, I just realized I'm living angry. I, I didn't see what I was doing before as anger, but now I see it as anger and I am ready to metanoia, to change my mind and to turn from anger back to you who is best for me. Most of us don't realize the way sin gets into our life is you agree that it's better than God. Well, nobody's going to agree that anger is better than God. Sure you do. Here's what it looks like. This person or my kids or this friend make me upset, and so I have the right to be angry at them. No, you don't. And what God says is you can choose that behavior. I'm just telling you it's not best for you. And so in those moments, we sit there and we repent from that. We go, oh my gosh, this isn't working out. I need to turn from my anger that I have felt entitled to back to the one who really satiates my soul, God. And we turn from sin back to God. That is repentance. That's what it has to be. But most of us sit back and we don't see repentance for what it is because we don't understand how great God is. Our repentance cycle is us sitting here as God's child and he's sitting there with us and he's watching us turn to anger and he's going, child, that's not best for you. The Holy Spirit's functioning and saying, that's not the best way. I wish you would put it down and turn back to me. And your God is so good, he's so amazing, he's not sitting there waiting to go, God, I wish you'd leave it alone. I'm glad you finally figured it out. He's a good dad and he's waiting to hold you. He doesn't need you to mourn your sin, to feel condemned or guilty about it, because why? He already paid for it. He bore your guilt, he bore your shame. What he needs you to do now, after he's already atoned for all of that, is turn back to him, into his loving arms where he is waiting to restore you. That is what repentance really looks like according to the scriptures. It's a loving dad waiting on the other side of us having a revelation from the Holy Spirit through conviction to turn back to the one who is truly designed to satiate the depths of our souls. That's different than what we think, isn't it, church? Ray Stedman's got a really great quote we're gonna throw up here. It says, a genuinely repentant person is one who has turned his life around and now proceeds in a new and changed direction. That is a genuinely repentant person, one who now has turned and proceeds. So let's do this. Let's talk about these two forces. Let's talk about godly grief and worldly grief. You can fill this in in your notes. Godly grief equals conviction. Godly grief equals conviction, and it is a function of the Holy Spirit. That's in your notes. You can fill those in. Godly grief equals conviction. It is a function of the Holy Spirit. Well, where do you make that connection? How do you know the Holy Spirit's at the root of that? I'm so glad you asked. Let's look at John 16. John 16, 7 and 8. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you, and when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. You see, that's the process of conviction. That's what the Holy Spirit does. 
Christ came, atoned for your sin, he left. It was good that he left because now we have something that we desperately need, the Holy Spirit, and he will convict us. Now, there's something really important that is required for conviction to function the way that it needs to. It's humility. The reality for so many of us is that we have sat back and we sort of have made sanctification the process, the lifelong process that we're in with God, an instantaneous act, and it isn't. Sanctification is this. Let's define this really big, super churchy word. Sanctification is the process in which God continues to make you look more like him through the entirety of your life. But in the church, so many times what we tend to do is we tend to come to God and go, I am in desperate need of a savior. I need you and I need you desperately right now. I realized I am totally a mess. And so I accept your sacrifice for me. We call that conversion. And then no sooner have we done that than we start to button it up and go, all right, now I gotta be really done here because guess what? I gotta look good on Sunday morning. Kids gotta look right, I gotta look right. I gotta be ready to go. You know, it's, it's Christianity in a glass box. I hope I look all right. And then what happens is you have a moment where you realize after 15, 20 years of being a believer that all of a sudden you go, oh my gosh, there's anger in my life. What am I gonna do? What if my friends find out that there's still anger here? I've completely failed my friends, my church, and I've failed God. No, you haven't. You just misunderstand sanctification. Sanctification is this one beautiful parable in Luke over and over and over again. It's the prodigal son. Prodigal son is a beautiful picture of Jesus telling this story in response to being asked what the kingdom of God is like for his kids. And what he tells in response is this parable. This is obviously paraphrased. He looks and he says, well, here's how it works out. There's a son, he comes to a father, he takes all of his inheritance at great cost to the family. He takes that inheritance, he walks away and he starts to squander it. He lives about as sinfully as you can possibly imagine. And then he has a moment. That moment is standing there eating out of a pig trough, just slop and mess. And he has a moment where he goes, this isn't best for me. I wanna turn from this. And he wants to proceed in a new direction, which is where? Home to dad. And when he comes home, He's still a long way off. And when he's a long way off, the father sees him and he does something unheard of in that culture at that time and he runs to the son. And then when he gets to the son, he gets there and he grabs him by the scruff of the neck and he says, I hope you know what a disappointment, what a... It's not how that story goes, is it? No. The father gets to the wayward son and he grabs him, he embraces him. He puts clothing on him because he is covered in rags. He shoes him, puts shoes on his feet, and then he does the unheard of. He takes a ring and he puts it on the son's finger, completely reinstating the son into full rights of sonship, which means he reinstates his inheritance that he already took and he squandered. That's what a really great dad does. And not only that, that's what Jesus says a really great dad does. And not just that, but he goes further to say, that's what your heavenly father looks like. And if you call yourself a child of God, that is what is waiting for you on the other end of the conviction process. 
That sinks your battleship, team. (laughs) You can't sit back and think that you're not turning to a really good God. Once God has grabbed your attention and you turn from this thing that is killing you, that's what's waiting for you. And in the sanctification process, that is not a one-time thing. You don't come to conversion and go, oh my gosh, I've messed up. Now I need to be clean. Your entire life with God here on earth is a systematic process of him bringing you home over and over and over again. But you have to be humble in order to recognize that you may have been a believer for 10, 20, 30, 40 years and you discover more sin. Do you know why? Because God's really, really good. If he backed up the dump truck of your sin on day one and just unloaded it right in front of you in a giant pile and went, all right, here we go. Anger, pride, lust, covetousness, you're, you're greedy, you're ang- boom. You're not a great dad, you didn't have good examples, you feel destined to fail, you're living in condemnation. Let's climb this mountain today. Ugh. You wouldn't have set one foot on that mountain, but God is such a good dad that he set up the perfect system. Do you know what that system was? I will pay for the mountain and I'm not even gonna let you see it. And then we will slowly start to walk it together. That's how good your dad is. Rally for most of us is we don't believe God for who he is. You're sitting there right now. I can hear some of your hearts from here. They are shouting through a megaphone at me. The news can't be that good. It can't be that good a news. What's the word for good news in the Bible? Gospel. The gospel can't be that good. God can't be that much bigger. He can't be that much better than what I've always thought. Well, guess what? He's already told you that. His ways are higher than your ways. His thoughts are higher than your thoughts. His news is better than your news. Some of us just need to start believing it. And if we don't, we start to buy into what we're going into next. On your notes, it's right here. Aren't you guys having fun? This is great. Okay, worldly grief equals condemnation. Worldly grief equals condemnation, and it is, this is what it looks like, agreement with the enemy's accusing voice, okay? For those of you that wrestle with the idea that the enemy's real, just stop. You can come up. If you wanna talk about that afterwards, that's not something I wrestle with. The enemy is real, and what most of us struggle with sometimes, if you don't think spiritual warfare is real, reread Ephesians over and over again until you do, But here's the reality. What kind of grief is this? Worldly grief. Who's the ruler of this world? The enemy, Satan. We even cringe, we're like, well, he can't say that in church. Yeah, we can. When you signed up to be a believer of Jesus Christ, you not only signed up for an incredible savior, but you signed up for one heck of a fist fight. And some of us continue to live life and fight a spiritual battle in a physical realm and we can't figure out why we're losing. Read Ephesians over and over again. John 12, 31 says, the enemy of this world, the ruler of this world is Satan. Now, most of you won't believe that you're still living in condemnation, but I wanna present something to you right now that may be difficult for you, but I think you will see you're still in more agreement than you think. How many of you, don't raise your hand, venues, multi-sites, this'll get embarrassing, okay? How many of you still make the statement from time to time, I can't forgive myself for that thing I did? 
How many of you still say, it happened 20 years ago, but that thing that I did, I still feel bad about? Here's what you're actually saying. I deserve to feel bad because I did this thing. That's okay, but what I want you to do, I told you I would challenge you, this is one of the challenges. I'm gonna challenge you to make a more theologically accurate statement in 2017. And I hope, lovingly, that it haunts you. The real statement that you are making when you say I can't forgive myself or I still deserve to pay this penalty to feel bad because of what I did, this is the real statement you need to make. Jesus Christ's sacrifice was not enough to cover what I did. Jesus Christ's sacrifice was not enough to cover that divorce that I got. His sacrifice wasn't enough to cover that addiction that I wrestle with. It wasn't enough to cover the fact that I cheated on my wife or my shortcomings as a father and a mother or the friend that I was to that person. His sacrifice wasn't precious enough and so now I'm gonna do something that makes a ton of sense. I'm gonna take my piddly little feeling bad. I'm gonna set it on top of the precious, perfect blood of Jesus Christ and now I will call that enough. That's the statement that you need to make, church because it's the statement you're actually making. It's not something you would ever say that you believe, but it is what you are doing with your daily life if you're still making statements like that. You would never say that you believe that. And if I asked you to minister to someone who was hurting because of something that they had done, you would never sit there and say, ooh, you're right. That one's pretty bad. Jesus' sacrifice wasn't enough for that one. You'd never say that you would have this gushing response of grace and mercy and love for this broken person in front of you. But somehow in your life, you have found a loophole for the cross and your sin somehow got around it. Enough. Stop it. Because the reality is you are listening to the wrong voice. And here's what I mean by that. Let's look at Revelation 12. Hey, real quick, this is kind of a pet peeve for me. There's no S at the end of this word, is that correct? <laughs> Let's stop saying revelations, okay? It's like when people sit there and they say, let's go get some espresso. There's no X in that word, it's just espresso, okay? <laughs> Same thing, this was not multiple revelations. They weren't being fired from God chapter by chapter. It's just one revelation. It was to John on the island of Patmos. Just for your pastor, would you just do that for me? Let's all do this one the right way. Okay, so Revelation 12 verse 10, and it says this. John is sitting there hearing this from the Lord. He says, and I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. This is what it looks like in the heavenlies as the, as the Bible refers to it, when you are sitting back, walking through your life, unaware of what's going on. The enemy sits there, as the scriptures say, before our God. And I'll use me as an example here. The enemy sits there and goes, Rustin? You wanna use Rustin? You, you wanna use the guy who blew up his marriage, who's a recovering addict, who has a wake of collateral damage a mile long behind him. He can't preach, he can't lead, he can't disciple. 
No one will follow him. He is too ashamed. He is too condemned. He cannot do those things. And on the other side of the courtroom is my defense, Jesus. And what Jesus says is he goes, no, Rustin, yes, my son, the one whom I adore and love, whom I cherish, yes, my blood has covered It has atoned perfectly, exhaustively, and completely for all those things you just said. And him and I will work out in my perfect time in his life how we restore and redeem those things. I will bring that work to completion for Rustin. And where do we stand? Where do I stand? I stand right here. And every day of my life, when I wake up, I decide which voice I will listen to. And for some of us here today, we have been listening to the wrong voice for far too long. That's what it looks like. We start to put finish lines in our lives as Christians, and we try to present ourselves as far more finished than we really are. This is why we do my stories. We don't do my stories because they are like kind of fun lead-ins to sermons, We don't put people up to drag them before the church and have them have to confess their sin. But you know what every person who has done a my story, myself included, would tell you? It's not all chooky, la-la, and perfect after we say cut. It's just one example of how the Lord brought us home in just one area. We filmed mine like seven years ago. Do you know how many times I've been brought home by the Lord in different areas since the story aired? A bunch. We're not done. We're not completed. It is finished. You are not. The thing that stands in our way is we put these little places in our life where we say, I've got to be done, I've got to be finished, and we start to wrestle with why we're not we've got to sit back and recognize one of the biggest things that stands in your way is pride. Because we try to say, well, I'm done or I'm more complete than I thought. I don't know if this quote will resonate with you again from Ray Stedman. But it says this, it says, our minds and our emotions become so brittle and so inflexible that we cannot bear to face the truth about who we are. Humility is the answer to this. Humbly going, Uh, Yeah, I'm not done. You're in your 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s. I don't care. You're not finished. Do you know how I know? You're still living and breathing. If you are vertical and taking nourishment today, you are a work in progress. Period. Now, let's do this. Let's apply this to our lives as if that's not what I've been doing for the last 30 minutes. I want to do this. I want to give you a litmus test today. I want to give you a way to try to figure out which one of these things you're doing, whether you're hearing from conviction or you're hearing from condemnation. The litmus test is this. It's a fill in the blank. Last thing I'll ask you to put in. Ask yourself, what is it producing? That's the litmus test. Ask yourself, what is the fruit or what is it producing in my life? You know, for, for some of us, we sit back, and I'll tell you right now, if you are sitting there today going, man, that thing I did 20 years ago, I still feel really bad about it. And you're still just carrying daily shame and guilt and condemnation over and over again. I'll tell you right now, that ain't the Lord, okay? 
That's just not him. Now, I, I can hear all of you thinking at me, but Rustin, I hurt someone, right? That's the thing. When we've hurt someone else, we sit back and we go, yeah, but somebody was hurt and they haven't forgiven me. I get it, okay? Many of you know my story. The reality is, and, and this is what I want you to see, until you've really come to the Lord and had the type of experience that Paul's describing here today, it's really hard to go and truly seek relational restoration with someone else. Until you have come before the Lord and recognized not how big your sin is, but how big your God is, it is really hard to go to someone else with the level of humility and brokenness that's required to just lay it down. That's the challenge. You've gotta be here first and recognize that you are reconciled and being redeemed by a perfect savior before you can go to someone else and do this. What I'm about to do is not completely exhaustive. It's probably a 40-minute sermon that I'm gonna try and do in an example. But I've experienced this because I've created a lot of pain in my life and I've had to say I'm sorry for some very painful things. Until that happens over there with the Lord, it is really hard to come to someone and say, I am so sorry for what I've done. I'm not here today to win you over. I'm not here today for me at all. I'm here today to tell you, I, I am sorry for what I did. I know that it was wrong. And someday I hope that you'll forgive me. There's no ifs, there's no ands, there's no but, there's no excuses. And this person's response doesn't own me. Why? Because I don't need them to give me any verbiage or any specific thing. Why? Because I already got what I needed from God. I'm here to reconcile with them. To say, you need to know that I know I was wrong. I know what I did hurt you. There's no excuses. There's no buts in an apology. It's just to say, I'm sorry, and I know what I did wasn't okay. I hope at some point you'll forgive me. You'll be amazed what walls that one knocks down. You're just completely throwing yourself at the feet of that person. Now, here's the challenge. If you were sitting back and you were saying to yourself, until that person forgives me, I just can't move on. That's fine, but guess what? That person is on the throne of your life instead of Jesus Christ. You have now gone right back to serving man instead of serving God. You are holding yourself condemned until that person says they forgive you. And guess what? Even their forgiveness won't get you out of this one. I have more people who've said, yeah, no, relational reconciliation has happened. I still just can't forgive myself. That's fine. But your sin is bigger than your God. And that needs to change. Here's what I want you to do. Two things, okay? What I want you to do is I want you to do something for you. And I want you to do something for others. For you, here's what I want you to do. I want you to repent. Now, I'm not standing up here screaming, you're sinful and you need to repent. We've described and broken down that word exhaustively today. I want you, if you are sitting there today going, oh my gosh, Rustin sunk my battleship. I don't know what to do. I have been listening to a condemning voice for far too long. What do I want you to do today? I want you to repent. I want you to turn away from the agreement that condemnation is yours to carry and turn back extravagantly to Jesus Christ. When you signed up to carry Christ as part of your title, Christian, you signed up for an extravagant faith. You didn't just sign up to say a prayer. And you need him to be bigger than your sin. And today might be the day where you need to just sit back and simply say, enough is enough. 
I will let the cross be enough. I won't add to his perfect sacrifice. I will simply believe him at his word. And some of you need to do that. And we're gonna give you an opportunity in a minute. You don't need to think about this, by the way. You don't need to pray about it. Don't give me the Christian answer. Let me pray about that. You don't need to pray about this. You need to go to the Lord and just do business and leave it and be done with it. Second thing, I want you to do something for others. Now, I said this last hour. If you take me serious for the next two or three minutes, every, uh, this has the potential to change not just your life, the life of your friends, your small group, and your family. Our church will look different at the end of this year if you take me serious for the next couple of minutes. What I want you to do for others is I want you to start speaking the truth in love. And let me qualify that. Ladies, I'm gonna use you as an example because I've heard this one before, like from one coffee table over. <laughs> Two women are sitting there having coffee and what does one of them say? Oh, that thing will never change because I'm just a terrible mom or I'm just a terrible wife, okay? Then what I hear on the other side is, here comes the encouragement. You're not a terrible mom. You're actually really nice because I see you on Pinterest all the time. <laughs> oh, you have a captive audience with this person for like three minutes. Could you please fire the most valuable bullet in your gun? Don't look at her and just flatter her. Don't tell her that you think she's doing a great job. Speak the words of God over her life. I'm not saying don't encourage at all. I'm just saying in that moment, look at that woman and say, wait a minute, that's not how God thinks about you. That's not how God speaks about you. What he says in the midst of that condemning thought is that there's no condemnation for you because you're found in Christ Jesus. That's Romans 8. He says, Psalm 34, the Lord redeems the lives of his servants. You can take refuge in him from condemnation. You're a daughter of a king. You are part of his div divine plan to restore his bride, the church. And you know what? How many moms and wives has God brought through to excellence despite them having a great example or not? He's pretty good at that. Will you do me a favor, sister, and, and hear me loud and clear? Because I feel those same ways. I hear those same thoughts. I think those same things. Can you and I together this year get side by side and love each other while we step away from condemnation and back in to the loving flow of God's care and grace for us? That'll change a relationship. Watch a friend try and get distracted and text on her phone after you fire that one at her. It won't happen. Guys, you're no better off. The reality is we do the same thing. For us, it just sounds like being a failure. We sit back and we go, I won't get that promotion. I won't be that husband that I'm supposed to be because I'm a failure. Look at that man dead in the face and say, do you recognize that God is for you? He's not against you. He won't leave you or forsake you. He'll bring that work to a completion. Please stop speaking condemnation over your life. If he's a husband, guess what? He has one of the most precious jobs in the Bible. He has been given a daughter of a king and that king trusts him to do what? to love that daughter like Christ loved his bride, extravagantly and sacrificially. Does that sound like a job that a king gives to someone he doesn't love and he doesn't trust? Well, husbands, wake up, God trusts you, he loves you, and he is waiting to help you. You can't fail, you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. But we're not hearing that, we're listening to the wrong voice. We're gonna do this, we're gonna go to the communion table right now, and this is kind of a, 
a big moment because some of us have had some revelation today. And so what I want to do is I want to cut our multi-sites and our venues loose for them to have that time led by their pastors. And so I'm going to pray right now and then come back and we'll, we'll kind of talk from there. So God, right now, I pray over every person in our church. That Lord, if, if you've done some work in their life today, if you have come in and convicted in some of these areas lovingly, that it's time to turn from something that's not good for us. And it's time to, to come in and to say yes to a different voice. It's time to start listening to your true voice for your kids. If you've done that work today, God, would you just give your kids courage to finally put it down? to finally turn from some of the things they've been believing and be at a place where they can say, enough is enough, it is finished, I am not. I take you at your word. And, and Lord, turn from some of these behaviors, some of these thoughts, and some of these ideas. Lord, that's our prayer today. And as we break, Lord, I just pray that you would just flood each and every room. Holy Spirit, that you would have your way as you move your people. Pray this in your name, amen.